This is Heart to Heart with Hospice Quinty on 91X. Heart to Heart features important and worthwhile conversations about hospice palliative care and end-of-life issues, tackling the tough issues with tenderness and the difficult discussions with dignity. Here's Jennifer May Anderson. Our guest today is Olga Nikolaev. She's a death educator, certified in thanatology, which is the study of the death, dying, loss, and bereavement. She's the founder and director of DyingMatters.ca and provides educational presentations, workshops, and guidance on death, dying, loss, and grief. Olga is also a dying well advocate, nurse educator, and grief counselor with over 25 years of professional experience as a registered nurse in various healthcare settings, including hospice palliative care. Her educational history includes a degree in anthropology and psychology, a master's degree in religion and culture, and an interdisciplinary certificate in palliative care. So, Olga, you are going to teach me lots of things today because it sounds like you know lots of things. Welcome. Uh, Aside from the little introduction that we did, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your role as a death educator? Certainly. Thanks, Jennifer, for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to speak a bit about the what I think is the new emerging uh, profession, end-of-life doula, death doula, thana doula, all the different names that it has. I'll tell you um, a little bit about me. Uh, aside from all of the training and the professional experiences that I've had, I draw a lot of my uh, education on some of the stories. So being with people who have died, being present with death, and really um my main attempt through the educational workshops is to really empower everyone on their own journey with death and dying. And so it's a really great opportunity to train new incoming support people like end of life doulas to train them on, you know, how to really be present, how to hold a a safe space, as well as being informed around some of the complexities um, with end of life care especially related to some of the advanced care planning kind of processes, some of the limitations in relationship to funeral um, services post-death, those kinds of things. Now, I am thinking of myself as a little girl, and I thought that I, you know, I might want to be a teacher or a ballerina. Um, So I don't know, as a little girl, did you say, you know, I really want to be a death educator. That's my life stream. Because I don't think many people see that as a a stream for employment or for professional uh, skills or development or or acting out in your professional life. So how, how did you come to be involved in this work? Well, I, I think my journey began as a young nurse. So in my 20s, I uh, was actually a labor and delivery nurse. So I started with the beginning of life and being present with that transition or that journey. And and very similar to the dying process, birthing is, is very much a social community um, event. It's not really in and shouldn't really be in the hands of healthcare unless there's some complications and those kinds of things. And so that was my beginning journey. But in the early 90s, when I graduated as a young nurse, there was no work in Ontario. So I ended up working in a long term care home all the way in British Columbia. And I started to see some of the similarities between birthing and dying and some of the complexities. And what I really began to see is my own um, inability to provide support that was really holistic. I had lots of knowledge around pain and symptom management. I could manage some of those things or help the client and and their 
or the residents and their families manage that. But some of the other components were missing for me. How do I provide some support more related to the emotional aspect, the psychosocial, spiritual components? And so my own studies began really out of my out of the places that I didn't know anything about. And I knew that providing end-of-life care or being at the bedside with my residents was really valuable and guiding the families through this process because so many of them have not had any kind of exposure to the natural process of, of dying. And so I didn't wake up to say I wanted to be a ballerina, but I think there's certain things that happen as you get a bit older, you start to realize that your life experiences bring you to the place where you want, where do you want to put your energy and your time? So very similar in your case, I'm sure you didn't think to yourself, I'm going to be a hospice um, executive director. And yet you've, you know, opportunities came about. So I've always been a big seeker of opportunities, really dispelling some of the myths around end of life care and providing good knowledge for people. Now, knowledge is, is is kind of hard to come by sometimes because it means having good information plus lived experiences then equals knowledge. And there is lots of folks who are actually not at the bedside of people that are dying and therefore they may not have those initial experiences. And oftentimes the experiences that they do have are very, uh, I wouldn't, maybe sometimes they're traumatic, but they're certainly chaotic and can be chaotic and uncertain. And while there are lots of great folks to provide support, sometimes they need what's what I often call a, a bridger. So end-of-life doulas in some way, and I, in the way and I provide education and support for the person who's dying with their families, are there to really bridge some of the um, misconceptions or some of the information or uh, provide some options where there may not the person may not have seen those options before as you said i did not uh, as a little girl think i was going to work at a hospice in any capacity let alone uh, in the capacity as executive director but since i've come to hospice work uh, one of the things that i see a need the most and it's interesting that you tied in uh, your starting career with uh, the beginning of life and being a labor and, and delivery nurse is that I think about when I became pregnant, there were all these resources, what to expect when you're expecting, you know, the health units there with uh, prepare uh, for birth classes and teaching you how to cope and talking to you about the physical symptoms that you're going to encounter and, and the emotional things that you might go through as you go through this process. And in my dream world um, at about end of life care is that when someone gets that diagnosis, that there would be those that same amount uh, and powerful resources would be around that person so that people can be okay your your breathing is becoming you know more labored and then the people around them don't panic it's like okay well that's just one of the things that happens and so we just need to be prepared for that and not panic because I think a lot of people's experiences I think chaotic is a really good term because everything is so new and they haven't had any preparation um, I know that obviously if we think about the history of of kind of birth, you know, when uh, the fathers were out of the room, uh, and it was a very private experience. And now it's, a, as you said, a very social experience. Um, how are people's views changing around the death experience? Good question, Jennifer. I think that the the views are changing. And what I'm seeing is I'm seeing some trends, and some of them are very age specific. So some of the um, 
folks that I have worked with in other positions, um, let's say some of the seniors, they they may not necessarily want um, a green burial. They may not necessarily want to have their families around to hold a vigil while they're actively dying. So they're more so looking at how can I not be a burden to my family? We hear that a lot. Um, and so those folks sometimes are still relying. They're very much relying on a healthcare system because that's how they grew up, right? They grew up in that paternalistic kind of notion of we will care for you. And there's also a sense that if you need something, just come to us. Where I see some of the shifts happening is I see majority of, of the changes are really happening um, at the community level. And those are usually usually women, but not always. And they're sort of between the ages of 35 and 65 who have had some lived experiences with death and dying and want to create some change, not only in the way of how healthcare is supporting people who are dying and grieving, but also how we can do this better in communities. So you already know that there's national campaigns of compassionate communities, and it's very linked, not linked, but it's it's connected to that kind of a movement. The Community Death Care Canada, which is actually a great resource for people who are looking at different ways of being with dying and how they can have some of those support services. You know, it's it's how do we shift a culture so that we can bring... I always say bring death and dying home. Most people want to die at home because that's the place of their security and and comfort. Not everyone wants that, though. So we have to, how do we hold a person's self-autonomy with respect and dignity and still have these conversations around what are the options, what are the choices? We talk a lot in hospice palliative care about accessibility and equity, but the reality is that these are not... Um, you know, things aren't always as accessible or as equitable as we would like to to have them be. Sometimes it's because of where people live. Sometimes it's what they have access to. So it's very dependent on those kinds of things. But I think there is a, a global movement to really demedicalize dying, to look at it as a natural process that sometimes is complicated by illness and disease, and really to look at it as a this is a part of life. Um, death is not the opposite of life. Birth is the opposite of 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 death. Um, so how can we how can we be with it in a way that's empowering, in a way that doesn't deplete us or burden us or um, burn us out? And I think that we probably the changes in how people are seeing births and demedicalizing births and bringing births home and uh, changing who's supporting a, a person who's giving birth, I think those are probably naturally going to bring us around to those conversations and we think about the other end of the spectrum and we think about uh, end of life. So if someone um, is either thinking that they might be interested in um, having the services of someone like yourself or how would someone go about that or how would they evaluate what they need or like how do people come to that? Because it's not like you, you don't ha see, you know, billboards, contact your end of life educator. Not yet, maybe. No. <laughs> I, I, and I can't afford to have a billboard. I think one of the ways is is there's Facebook is one of the ways that people are, are accessing some useful information. I think that some of the hospices within different regions might know of someone who is involved in this kind of work. So now you know that I'm involved in this kind of work. Um, and so they might seek, fo you know, uh, folks that way. The other is, um, while 
I don't necessarily provide a list of resources. There are other networks that are building those natural resources of -of end-of-life doulas. So as I mentioned before, the community... Death Care Canada is has a list of end of life doulas who've had certain type of training and what have you. Part of my role is is also to provide some guidance for people who are looking for training in this field. And right now, because it's so new, um, there's there's a little bit of tension between the community led movement to really demedicalize, enable families to do their own vigiling to. Uh, facilitate their own funerals without a lot of input necessarily from funeral directors or the healthcare team. And so they're very active in really empowering families. And that's great. And I think that there's also room to have proper training that really speaks to the scope and practice of an end-of-life doula as the bridger and how they can educate families and how they can and get them to the original uh, sources of information, such as how is informed decision-making being made, what are the legal uh, rights to have a home funeral, those kinds of things. So I provide a lot of that kind of education for folks because it's so, as you know, it's so different across Canada in the U.S. So if I'm giving somebody advice on where to find some support, the first thing I would say is if you're looking for training, then... Is it specific to your area? Will you be armed with some really good knowledge on some of the legal aspects that you need to really pay attention to? Because when the chaos hits and all the family members come, sometimes there's difficulty in dealing with some of those emotions or what have you, and sometimes uh, people are scapegoated. And so you've got to know what your scope is and how to really um, honor that profession and how to, to move forward with families. So if someone is interested in finding out more about your services or about this uh, profession in general, where would you suggest that they go? So I have a, my website is dyingmatters.ca. It's fairly catchy. I kind of mirrored um, a website that the UK has, which is all about end-of-life education. And so as I'm developing that, I will be posting some more information. But off the cuff, they can give me a call and I will do my best to uh, find them a resource that will work for them. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with me today, Olga. And again, if anyone would like uh, any more information, her website is dyingmatters.ca. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. You've been listening to Heart to Heart with Jennifer May Anderson of Hospice Quinty. Their mission is to change the lives of the terminally ill, their families, and the bereaved for the better by offering support and companionship. Learn more about hospice at hospicequinty.ca and listen for Heart to Heart regularly at this time on Alternative Radio 91X.